the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Let Us Reason, a Christian-Muslim dialogue with host Al Fadi. Let Us Reason is a unique show utilizing theology, apologetics, and evangelism to reach Muslims for Christ by comparing and contrasting Christian and Muslim doctrines. And now, your host, Al Fadi. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for uh, tuning in uh, and for following us uh, uh, you know, regarding this uh, fascinating series about uh, Isaiah 53 and uh, the work that uh, our dear brother Anthony Rogers have been putting into it and how he has been unpacking all of these uh, rich passages for us. Today, we are going to talk about a, another important topic in relationship to the suffering servant, that's atonement. And of course, I don't want to jump ahead of myself or ahead of uh, uh, the topic itself, but just wanted everyone to know that there is is a lot, uh, basically, for us to learn from just that passage alone as it relates to everything that uh, identifies us as followers of our Lord, why it is so significant about his work, his first coming, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, and the list can go on and on and on. So I hope that you are, as you're watching this, taking notes uh, go in to the passage itself to investigate what Anthony has been sharing with you. Don't take our words for it. Just go and in inspect it for yourself. Share any comments with us. Send us any questions. You can reach out to me through my website and through the channel. Anthony has his own channel as well. So please uh, feel free uh, to connect with us. Anthony, as always, thank you so much, brother, for being here with us and for the work that you're doing and for this amazing, amazing exposition of such a powerful passage. What is it about the atonement that we can also learn about from Isaiah 53? And I ask the questions. I mean, I thank God at least I am I'm, I'm able to decipher where you're going with this. But for the benefit of those who are watching us, I'm asking these kind of questions. Yeah. So we've seen already. Let's let's remember what we've seen. We, we've seen that this text identifies this figure as a divine person. It uses language that is used exclusively for God in Isaiah, when it speaks of him being high and lifted up and greatly exalted, when it refers to him as the arm of the Lord and so forth. Uh, we, we've seen that he's a divine person, but we've also seen that he's a real human being. That's the presupposition of the fact that he's going to suffer and die, and he's even explicitly called a human being. But this human being is a righteous person, as we've seen. He's called my servant. God wouldn't call him my servant in the way that he does if he wasn't righteous. He's even called my righteous servant, 5311. So he's a righteous individual, a divine person. And so the lingering question is, why would this one die? In fact, he dies in excruciating death. I don't know if I uh, used this uh, verse when I mentioned it in the previous episode, but in verse 539, it, it refers to his death, and the word death is actually in the plural. And so it speaks to the intensity of the death that this one would die. He would be under great weight in his death. 
as if he's bearing down upon himself the full brunt of divine wrath. Right. right? So, so that's the question. Why is this one suffering and dying if he's righteous and if he's a divine person who's become flesh? What, what gives here? Okay. That's the question. Well, in fact, it even says in 5310 that it was the Lord's will to crush him. So that adds all the more weight to this, this question. Why was he suffering? Why was the Lord pleased to crush him? Okay. Well, all of these questions are clearly answered in the text. According to the text, this is the rub, this one would die because the guilt of God's people would be laid upon him. That is, the Lord would lay them upon him, and mm-hmm. he voluntarily would take them upon himself. And you can see the plurality here. You see the the importance of the plurality here. Oh, yeah. Since we know this is a divine person, this is significant. You know, you have the Lord, uh, on the one hand, putting the burden of guilt upon him, and you also have him as a divine person bearing this guilt. So you have a a plurality of persons in view in this text, very clearly, right? But notice in 53.6, it tells us why he suffers, why he dies. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. So here's Isaiah speaking as a member of the, the nation of Israel, right? So he's saying that the iniquity of us all would fall upon it. The same Isaiah who himself was forgiven by God in Isaiah 6, mm-hmm. right? Remember in Isaiah 6, he cried out when he saw God because of his holiness. Yeah, well, uh, to the me. holy. Yeah, the, the holiness of God terrified Isaiah, but the Lord pronounced Isaiah forgiven. Here, Isaiah has a clear indication of the basis of that forgiveness. On the basis of what God would do in the future, right. he forgave Isaiah's sin even in the past, right? But Amen. it goes on. 53.11 says, he will bear their iniquities. 53.12 says, he himself bore the sin of many. So, over and over again, this text that tells us he's righteous and that he would die and that it would be the Lord who would crush him also tells us the reason why this would happen, because he would bear our iniquity and uh, he would bear our sin. In fact, uh, 53.5 says this, he was pierced through on account of our transgression, because of our transgression. He was crushed because of our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And 53.8 says, He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Okay, What all of this language is pointing to is the idea that this one is going to die in the place of sinners. The death that sinners deserve to die, he's going to die. He's going to bear their guilt and endure their punishment. And by virtue of that, He's going to uh, remove it, right? Our guilt is going to be removed or is removed, has been removed since this is now in the past for us, has been removed because of what this one uh, would do. Amen. In fact, I didn't mention it, but most notably, 5311 says, he will render himself as a guilt offering, a guilt offering, hearkening back to the sacrificial system. This is the whole point of the sacrificial system. Moses was pointing to this too. Long before Isaiah, Moses was pointing to this great need for atonement and the reality of this future thing that God was going to do. He instituted this whole system that typologically foreshadowed it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, yeah. uh, his death, we're told, would secure forgiveness. This is the the whole point of 
justification, right? What is justification is the removal of guilt, divine forgiveness, and God accepting us as righteous, right? We're, we're going to be punished outside of Christ, it, you know, because of our sins, we're going to die and, and endure God's judgment forever. Uh, so in justification, our sin and it's the guilt of it and the, the punishment due to us needs to be removed. And we need to be clothed with righteousness so that we can stand before God entitled to eternal life. And, and the, the text is clear on all of these fronts. In 53.5, it says, by his scourging, we were healed. It means by his scourging, uh, we are delivered from condemnation. That's the idiom that he's using. Uh, later in the text, it says, the chastening for our well-being, or literally for our peace, fell upon him. You, you can hear what the apostles echoing later when he says that having been justified, we have peace with God, right? The, the, the basis for the peace is being declared already here by the prophet Isaiah. This is what it means to be justified, the very thing a servant would do according to Isaiah 53.11. Isaiah 53.11 says, by the knowledge of him, my righteous servant will justify many. In fact, given the grammar here, it could be expressed more forcefully. The upshot of the Hebrew is, by the knowledge of him, that is, that by our knowledge of him, our faith in him, my righteous servant will cause the many to be accounted righteous, declared righteous. So we are going to be declared righteous, accounted righteous by God on account of the guilt-removing death and the perfect righteousness of this servant. And then the text concludes on this glorious note. He himself bore the sin of many and intercedes for the transgressors. And it's significant to note here that the form of the word here for intercede refers to an act begun in the past and continuing into the future. future exactly. In other words, even though this one will die, he will yet live, ever live, to intercede for those for whom he died. That's right. And, and I want to uh, point something, and, and maybe you're going to touch uh, uh, on it, uh, Anthony, so forgive me if you jump jumping ahead. Uh, you know, you mentioned something that is true, that it was the desire of the Lord to crush him. And people sometimes point out and say, oh, you see, you know, God is really, how can God be merciful, you know, in doing this? But notice the language here. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, there is a covenant between the father and the son here. There is a negotiation. There is an agreement. So it was Jesus' will to be crushed and to be offered as a, uh, a guilt offering because he loved us. That's why he agreed to do so. He wasn't forced, by the way. It's the desire of the Father. Here is the plan of salvation. And the Son says, Father, I came to do the will of him who sent me in obedience. May your will be done not mine. So that's extremely important. There is negotiations taking place here, and you really have to look at the Hebrew to begin to understand what is the covenant and what is the language here that is uh, happening. What are people going to be exposed to next time, brother? Well, we're actually going to uh, see that this message that we've been learning about in this series is, in fact, the gospel message announced in advance. I know that's probably already obvious to many viewers, but we're going to make it more obvious. We're going to make it obvious in a way that perhaps people haven't noticed before. We're also going to see along with that, that this gospel that Isaiah is heralding 
was the same message as that of all the prophets. Muslims love to pretend that the message of all the prophets was their truncated message about monotheism, which is not even biblical monotheism. But in fact, the message of all the prophets is precisely this, that God so loved the world that he was going to give his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have eternal life. Amen. And that's extremely important, like you said, because this isn't like a one-off message. No, it's a consistent message throughout the history of the prophets leading to the first coming of our Lord. And Isaiah did mention the second coming, even though some of the Jews or at least the Pharisees missed it altogether. Thank you, brother. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. Until next episode, have a blessed day. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back after this message. You're listening to Let Us Reason with Al Fadi. We depend on the generous gifts of our supporters to produce this program. To join us in this work, go to patreon.com and search for CIRA International. That's C-I-R-A International. You can also donate through PayPal. Go to CIRAInternational.com to learn more. Your support will help us continue introducing Muslims to the gospel of Christ. Now, back to Let Us Reason. Greetings, everyone. This is Al-Fadi, and with me here in studio, at least virtually, our dear brother Anthony Rogers, and I hope that you have been blessed beyond belief uh, by watching this series and, and also learning uh, from our dear brother and the, uh, the depth uh, that he's taken us through a passage like Isaiah 53 and how that ties into our Lord. And today is no exception. What have we learned then throughout these previous episodes? Well, one word sums it up, the gospel. The gospel is what we are learning about this amazing passage. So uh, let us discuss today the, the gospel and how that ties into the message of the prophets, because that's extremely important to show that this is exactly and precisely the message that God sent the prophets uh, to proclaim to his people and oftentimes to nations as well, not just in the New Testament, but also in the Old Testament. As I stated earlier, with us here is our dear brother, Anthony Rogers, to unpack all of that for us. Anthony, as always, thank you so much, brother, for taking the time to be here with us, and thank you for the amazing work that you're doing. Thanks for having me again. So what can we learn then about, uh, uh, from this passage, Isaiah 53, I should say, about the gospel and the message of the prophets also? Yeah, so many people will immediately think when they hear the word gospel of Christianity, that's true today and that's appropriate right? Our message is the gospel. But when you look at certain scholarly works, you'll sometimes hear people say that this term was actually current in first century uh, Israel and the broader Roman world. Uh, it was current, and so this word actually comes from that context. Now, there is a sense in which this is true, that the term was used in uh, the known world at that time in, in the Roman Empire, uh, the Greek term euangelion, which we usually say is, we pronounce as evangel. That's why Christians who believe the gospel are called evangelicals, for example. We believe the evangel, the gospel. That term was used in the first century, and, and it, in fact, was uh, connected to things like the birth of the emperor, when they would announce the birth of the emperor, maybe later, you know, when they're referring back to it, they would refer to it as the good news, the gospel uh, of of the birth of, of this reigning figure. Well, because of that, as I said, scholars will sometimes suggest that this is where the term came from, but it actually isn't. And it's even uh, clearly not the case that this is where this comes from. The word gospel actually comes from the prophet Isaiah and other Old Testament prophets and 
the way that the Jews rendered this into Greek several centuries before the coming of our Lord, right? Remember I said that Isaiah 52 and 53, the prophecy, is part of a larger section that begins back in chapter 40 and extends all the way up to chapter 66, this new Exodus section as we've called it. But I want you to note a couple of passages that are found in this section, and these are just a few of them, or a couple of them, and there's others. But here's Isaiah 40, verse 9. The prophet says, get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. Now, don't miss the message there, by the way. The message is, here is your God. So somehow there's this message of good news that centers on the arrival or the coming of God. But the operative term here is good news. It's used twice in Isaiah 40, verse 9. That's the Hebrew word basar. And when it was translated into Greek, it uses the word for gospel, right? It could legitimately be translated bearer of the gospel. I mean, it's, it's a verb here, and so it's, it's referring to the action of, of bearing the good news. Uh, but that's, that's the idea that, that this yep. comes from. And the Arabic word is bishara, which is, uh, that's yeah. the word for good news. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, here's another text. Uh, this is uh, from uh, Isaiah 52. It says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who brings the gospel, who announces peace. Remember, harken back to the previous episode where this one will be our peace. He will establish peace by his death. It says, who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who brings the gospel of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. So again, it uses the term gospel twice. It connects this with the the promise of salvation and peace and the arrival of God. This is the, the, the very chapter, the section where it goes on to talk about the Lord bearing his holy arm in the sight of all the nations so that all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God, right? We saw that the arm of the Lord is a title for the Messiah in 53.1. And so this is the origin of the word. Now, you don't need to have a word present in order for a concept to be present. And so, you know, even though, you know, sometimes you get people saying, well, if this term isn't there, well, then the concept is, and that's just fallacious. Uh, but the term is used sometimes in other prophets. For example, Nahum 1.15 uses the term. But, but again, it's, it's more important that the concept can be found elsewhere. So we're going to look at some of what other prophets have said that coincide with Isaiah. But, but before doing that, let me bring up one more text, Isaiah 53.1. This is the servant prophecy, right? Mm-hmm. It's the heart of it. 53.1 says, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's how it's normally rendered. However, when the Jews rendered this into Aramaic, they used the Aramaic equivalent for the Greek word gospel. Mm -hmm. So they recognize this is the gospel message that Isaiah has been leading up to all throughout this new Exodus section of his prophecy, chapters 40 through 66. So this is the origin of the term gospel. That's why it's not surprising, and we'll look at this more in a future installment. That's why it's not surprising. Have you noticed this, Al? When Mark begins his gospel, he begins it by saying this. Verse 1 says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right. Okay, so he calls it the gospel, this message that he's going to declare. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, 
as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. That's right. He jumps right? into Isaiah and, it, and mentions John the Baptist. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and what does John the Baptist say, by the way? It, John the Baptist goes on to talk about what this person would do, and he says, I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Right? This is the very thing that we saw was promised that this figure would do as he accomplishes this new exodus. He would provide deliverance from guilt and condemnation, but also pour out the Spirit on the dry and thirsty land. Okay, exactly. So all of this is just flowing right out of the prophet Isaiah. Clearly, this message was not innovated by Mark or Paul or any New Testament figure. Absolutely. And, and if, if you go to the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 19 to 26, when the Pharisees send a delegate to John the Baptist, and they ask him, are you the Christ? So they kind of like understood that there is some tie here to that good news, to the coming of the Messiah. And it's interesting that in verse 26, the Holy Spirit inspired John to write that John the Baptist was on the other side of the Jordan River. Why is that significant? Because that's how Joshua and the Israelite entered the promised land, which is symbolic, of course, of the kingdom of God, if you wish, or at least the place of rest. And he was preparing the way for the coming of the king, technically speaking. Yeah, and since you mentioned it, remember that when Joshua and the Israelites crossed the Jordan, God parted it like he had parted exactly. the waters at the time of the Exodus. Well, what is it that happens when our Lord is baptized by John? Well, it doesn't say that the waters are parted. That would be a way of indicating that this was just another thing like the Exodus, and you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's of no greater moment than the Exodus. But everything the Old Testament teaches us to expect is that this would be something greater. It, the Exodus points to it, but it's greater than the Exodus. And so what happens in the account when Jesus is baptized is that the heavens are opened. The heavens are parted, right? And this is paralleled by the end of the account when it talks about the death of our Lord, and it says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The, 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 the veil on the temple had a panorama of the heavens. Josephus tells us about that in his, in his writings. So it was like a picture of the heavens being torn open at the death of this figure. In other words, he's opening up the way of access to God. This is the true way of access into God. This is the new way, the new exodus that God had talked about. So this actually goes to what I was talking about. This is the message of all the prophets. Here we've just looked at how this is anticipated by Moses in the Exodus, how it's anticipated by Joshua as he's leading the people into the promised land. Uh, but 23, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and prosper. This, there's terms here that are taken right out of Isaiah, right? As if, right? They were taken out of Isaiah. But notice it goes on to say, this is the name by which he will be called the Lord who is our righteousness. So he's called the branch like in David. He's called right or like in Isaiah. He's called righteous like in Isaiah. It said that he will prosper like in Isaiah. And we're told specifically that he would be the Lord who is our righteousness. Isaiah tells us that he will justify, cause the many to be accounted righteous. Here, Jeremiah tells us essentially the same thing. Right? Amen. In Jeremiah 33, it says, in those days, and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring forth. In those days, Judah will be saved. So talking about this same figure, this branch, this servant, right, this one who is God, it says that he will save. Uh, the prophet uh, Zechariah, similarly in uh, Zechariah 3.8 says, now listen, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch. Right here. I mean, that's the, where the we branch. get the word Nazarene, Nazarene, you know, the branch is indication of that as well. So 
Yeah. 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 So he's explicitly called my servant, right? So here you have a intertextual link to Isaiah 53. The branch is identified as the servant, but it goes on immediately after talking about this servant. And it says, uh, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. Like clearly, this is the same concept, the same idea that's in view in Isaiah 53, right? Where the exactly. servant will bear away the iniquity of the people. The God, the Lord will put upon him the, the iniquity of us all. He will bear it. He will be crushed. He will take it away. That's what God says through the prophet Zechariah about this servant. Right? Also, Zechariah 6, note the language, behold, right? Just like Isaiah, behold, the man whose name is the branch. He says, this one will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne. So here you have a joining together of offices in the Old Testament that were otherwise separate. This one will be both king and priest. In other words, he'll be the Messiah, and he'll provide sacrifice for sin. So he's going to reign, he's going to provide atonement, and it's by this means that he will save and account people righteous. And and this this sort of thing, again, I mean, it can be found all through the prophets. We're only scratching the surface, but what more can we do with a a text so rich? And we can do this uh, through a live stream to go through the messages of prophets. And I loved what he said, that he will be our righteousness, and uh, rightfully so, because Paul, a Pharisee of Pharisees, inspired to say this, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we become the righteousness of God. Hallelujah. Yes. Thank you so much. Right. Amen. Amen. Thank you. And thank you, everyone. Until next episode, have a blessed day. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.